In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. some of you are thinking, you're thinking, <laughs> how are you going to preach on that, Jamie? I mean, what's, what's all that about? That was Daniel chapter 7 that was just read there. We're starting a new series today, believe it or not, on Daniel 7 through 12, which is the latter half of the book of Daniel. We did the first half uh, last winter. We're going to do the second half now. And I got to tell you, I, I was cautioned actually by a friend of mine who's a pastor. He said, it was actually Schrader, Tom Schrader. He said, you know, if you preach on Daniel, just stop at chapter 6. Don't even try to go beyond that. He said, they, they won't get it anyways and neither will you, so just, just stop. And I said, Tom, I can't do that. I said, this is Scottsdale Bible Church. They're like, they'll run me out if I preach half a book of the Bible. I said, you know, we, we got to do the whole thing. And, uh, and, and so about a week and a half ago when I was getting on the short strokes on this series, I called up Schrader. And I was whining to him about how difficult it's going to be to preach on this stuff. And uh, he said, you know, Jamie, you can't not take my advice and then call me to whine about it. And and I said, yeah, I can. That's what friends are for. And he said, no, that's what marriage is for. And I, okay, good point. (laughs) Yeah, leave it to Schrader. But but we're going to tackle this. We're going to tackle chapters 7 through 12 over the next couple of months here at our church. And though you might not have gotten half of what was said there, I... I think in the next 30, 40 minutes, we're going to help you make some sense of that. Uh, Daniel 7 through 12 is a lot about prophecy, prophecy, predicting what's going to come or what has already happened, predicted hundreds of years before. And before I even pray, and I'm going to pray here in just a minute, I want to give you guys three really important caveats that I hope you're going to keep in mind over the next two months here at our church. This is really important for us to understand. Kind of three precursors to this series. First, prophecy is very difficult to make sense of and interpret. Do we all understand that? It's really difficult to make sense of and interpret. I mean, the Jewish people back in the Old Testament didn't understand the half of it. They even, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees missed the coming of Christ uh, and who he really was because they didn't understand prophecy. And and prophecy is very hard to understand and make sense of. In fact, over the last 2,000 years of Christian theologians trying to make sense of prophecy, we've ended up today with like multiple schools of thought that are all over the map. You got the Preterist school that says that all Old Testament prophecy really culminated at at 70 AD in the fall of Jerusalem, so it's all kind of past tense type of stuff. 
Then you got the dispensationalists that say, no way, it's all going to happen. A lot of it's still in the future. Anything that clearly didn't happen in Christ is going to happen in the future now. Then you got the amillennialist school and John Calvin that basically argued that most of prophecy is allegorical and metaphorical, so it's kind of happening in the spiritual realm right now as we sit here even in our church today. In other words, there's been all different kinds of interpretations of people trying to make sense of prophecy. It's not easy stuff. And as a result of this, here's the second caveat I want to give you, and that's that some people believe they have this prophecy thing all figured out. I don't. I just want to go on record saying that. I have friends that when I talk to them about prophecy, man, they they sound as sure about their interpretation of prophecy as they do of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it just blows me away. They're so confident. They seem so confident. I just want you guys to know as we start this series, I'm taking a much more humble approach to that. I think I got some things to share with you today that I believe strongly about out of Daniel 7. I think we can make sense of this chapter and apply it to our lives. But that's a far different cry from saying that I got all this prophecy stuff figured out and I know exactly how it's going to come down. I take a more humble approach than that. There's been too much divergence for us to have that kind of, well, arrogance when it comes to it. Having said that, here's a third caveat, though, and that's that prophecy is still, however, very worthwhile to study. It is. It's still worth studying. The dilemma we have today is that there are those who are really into prophecy, and again, some of them think they have it all figured out. That's one extreme we want to avoid. But then the other extreme is where the bulk of you are, and that's that whenever you read something in the Bible prophetic, you're like, next. I didn't get that. Next. In other words, you don't park in front of it and try to wrestle with it and figure it out, and hence you miss some cool things that God has for you. First, we study prophecy because it's in the Bible. Second, we study it because it prepares us to be ready. It's kind of a preparation type of thing, a preparation for what is to come. Third, it causes us to worship God. You're going to see that today. It's so awesome. He's so good. He's got so many things prepared. You will worship Him. And then lastly, if that doesn't convince you, it's worth studying prophecy because it gives us something to argue about other than worship music, right? (laughs) I mean, think about the last 50 years of the church. All people, they laugh more in the first service than you guys. But anyways, and and, then... In the last 50 years, all we've ever argued about in the church is music, right? Don't like this music, do like this music. You know what they argued about before the current worship wars? Prophecy. They did. I'm telling you, read the history books. They bickered back and forth like for years on this and that and this and that. So let's go back to those days, shall we? And, And not just talk about music. Let's start talking about some more robust things like what the Word of God says. This is going to be a great study for us. I think you're going to like it. I really do. Keep these three things in mind, but uh, hang on to your pew. We're in for quite a ride as we dive into what I call future 401. This is not 101 level or 201 level or 301. This is the deep end of God's, underst- God's re- revelation of prophecy. But, but as you bear with me, I, I think you'll get a lot out of this, okay? With that said, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. As uh, Peter said, there are some things that are written that are really hard to understand. That's true. And uh, we make no bones about that. And yet, Lord, uh, i got to believe that every one of us here are here because at the very least we have spiritual thirst. At the most, we're followers of Jesus and want to grow in Him. And so, God, we are here today wanting to learn more about what Your Word says. And so, Father, I pray that as we dive into the deep end of some of this stuff, that we do justice to it, that we'd understand it rightly that we would honor divergence but come down in certain areas ourselves. And Lord, may there not be one person who walks out of here this morning not somehow challenged and encouraged in their walk with you. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. 
Now, when we read that passage to you earlier, when you heard it read with that picture there, if you didn't know anything about history 2,500 years ago, and you didn't know hardly anything about the Bible, then that would be one of the most nonsensical chapters you'd ever read in the Bible. It would. It would be very, very difficult to understand. And yet here's the deal, folks. We do know a lot about the history of when Daniel 7 was written. We know a lot about the history of the things he is writing about. And we certainly know a lot about the context of the book of Daniel. And so when you add this all together, here's the good news. There is lots that we do know to help us make sense of what was read to you earlier. And so we don't need to be intimidated by it. We don't need to retreat from it. We don't need to pretend we can't understand it. None of that is true. And so without further introduction, because I used my introduction on those three caveats I gave you, um, I want to share with you three principles. I want us to dive right in. Three truths that we glean from a reasonable and open-minded reading of Daniel chapter 7. And the first one is simply this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that when God says something is going to happen in the future, it's going to happen. That's what the first eight verses of Daniel 7 teach us. That when God says something is going to happen in the future, it's going to happen. And so check this out. This whole thing in Daniel 7 begins in the year 553 B.C., 500 years before the time of Christ. The nation of Israel has been in captivity in Babylon for 52 years now, and Daniel is roughly 67 years old, and he's been in Babylon for 52 years ever since its captivity when he was only 15 years old. And we know all of this because of verse 1 of Daniel 7 when it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's all we need to know. We know from history that the first year of Belshazzar was 553 B.C. We know that in about 605 B.C. was the Babylonian captivity. So you do the math and we know all the stuff that I just said. We're rock solid on that. And it is in this year, again, more than 2,500 years ago, just 500 years before the time of Christ, that Daniel has a vision of the future. Daniel was a prophet in the nation of Israel back then. And along with Jeremiah and others, he had a 100% track record of receiving dreams and visions from God that came true. You can read about it in chapters 1 through 6. Nebuchadnezzar found this out the hard way, that when Daniel had a dream or Daniel had a vision, it was from God and it came true. And now here in chapter 7, Daniel has another vision. And in this vision, he sees four great beasts described there in verses 1 through 8. He saw a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a fourth beast so terrifying that it defied any zoological categorization. And we know from our study of Daniel 2, as well as what we're going to see next week in Daniel 8, that these four beasts represent four secular nations that will arise from Daniel's time then and extend over the next four or five hundred years in the Middle East and in Europe. Don't miss us, folks. These four beasts we know from our study of the rest of the Bible and then from history are going to be four nations that will arise over the next four or five hundred years. Daniel is predicting this, and sure enough, he was right. Look up here on the screen. Here's what these four beasts represent. The lion with eagle wings is the current, then at that time, Babylonian empire of Daniel's day. It existed from 605 to 538 B.C. And when it says that its wings were plucked off, that's Daniel's vision that this empire is just about ready to end. 
and it's just about ready to be done. And sure enough, it's going to happen. Then you have the bear. The bear is the Medo-Persian Empire that would come after the Babylonians from about 559 to 331 B.C. And when it notes that this bear was raised up on one side, I don't know if you caught that or not, meaning that one side of this bear was bigger than the other, this refers to the fact that the Persian Empire was going to be the stronger of the Medo-Persian combination. And so Daniel predicted that aspect of it. And sure enough, it came true. In fact, this Persian Empire went on to conquer Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, thus the three ribs in its mouth. And then next you have the leopard. And this is obviously the Greek Empire from 336 to 146 B.C. This is one that most of you are familiar with because you've heard of Alexander the Great, who was the great conqueror with, of the Greek, or with the Greek Empire. And a leopard, swift and fast, is a great description of Alexander as he swept across the Middle East and Europe, conquering everything that came in his path. And when he died, and he died pretty young, his conquests were divided up among his four generals, thus the four wings and the four heads that Daniel sees on this beast. It was divided up into fourths. And then finally, you got the fourth beast that Daniel sees, a terrifying beast with, as I said, no zoological comparison that Daniel could find. And this represents Rome. Obviously, it represents Rome. One of the greatest nations, one of those powerful nations to ever exist in the history of the world from 241 B.C. to at least 400 A.D., some argue even a thousand years after that. It's the mighty and powerful Roman Empire that conquered the Greek Empire and then it conquered Asia Minor and what is today southern Britain and France and Belgium and Switzerland and Germany. I mean, the Roman Empire was a beast with no comparison beyond identification in its power. As Walvoord, John Walvoord says, and I quote, clearly the greatest of all empires of history, end quote. And Daniel predicted the rise of the Roman Empire. He nailed it. And that's primarily what I need you to see here, folks, is that Daniel got a vision from God of all of this in 553 B.C., way before any of this took place. And sure enough, over the next four or five hundred years, it all comes true. The Babylonian Empire ended, its wings cut off. The Medo-Persian Empire arose with the Persian Empire stronger. Then the Greek Empire came up, Alexander swiftly going across Europe and the Middle East, and then his four generals each getting a fourth. And then the mighty Roman Empire arising, stronger than any nation ever seen at that time. And don't miss that with details unique to each arising nation, using four different kinds of beasts, predicted dozens if not hundreds of years before any of this happened, Daniel received a vision from God of what was to come, and he nailed it with pinpoint accuracy. And so the point for you and I is obvious and clear. When God says something is going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen. He has a track record of doing that. He has a track record of giving us prophecy at different points in time and then having it come true for the reason of bolstering our faith that if he says it, it's going to happen. And so the take-home point for you this morning is simply this. Look up here on the screen. That we can and should understand and trust then biblical prophecy. Folks, if there is anything 
that the Bible teaches us, if there's anything that Daniel gives us here in bold outline, it's the fact that if God says it, it's going to happen and that you and I have every reason to trust it. I mean, think of the history of prophecy in the Old and New Testament. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Hosea, Joel, Zechariah. Then you flip the pages of the New Testament and you got John and Paul and others. All examples of God's prophets who heard a clear word from God of things that would come and even things as we're going to see that are still to come. And sure enough, it's all happened. And so if God says it through one of his well-chosen prophets, it's going to happen. You and I can understand and trust biblical prophecy. You know, for those of you who kind of think like engineers, this picture will help. Give me a click here, guys. Yeah, thanks. Um, One of the great things about the Christian worldview is that Christianity makes it really clear that time is linear. Some of you have heard me share this before, but you want to latch on to this again. Time is linear. In other words, as opposed to other worldviews that argue that time is circular in nature, you know, starting here in the circle of life and then repeating itself, you know, through different incarnations and what have you as we go along, the Bible knows nothing of a worldview like that. It describes time as linear. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created meaning God created time and all that we are. And that started a linear line that interestingly in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, in the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, chapter 22, it says the saints will rule forever and ever. Interesting. Basically telling us that time's going to end there as we enter into the eternal state. So don't miss this. Time is a continuum. It's linear in nature with God starting it, taking us somewhere, and eventually having an end. And so if you can picture the present right now with history behind you and the future before you, here's how prophecy works. And that's that at certain points on this timeline, God interjects a vision of the future. That's what prophecy is. God interjecting a vision onto this timeline of something that's going to happen in the future of this timeline. And though arguably all prophecy has ended now with the completion of the book of Revelation, we still have information that he's interjected on this timeline of stuff that's going to happen even in the future. And the whole point of him doing this, don't miss this, is so that you and I can be ready. So that we can have some knowledge, not complete, because again, we don't understand it all, but some knowledge of what's going to happen in the future so that we can be rock solid in the present trusting him and prepared for what is to come. This is precisely what Jesus was trying to teach you and me in Matthew 25 when he told the story of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to uh, to arrive. Remember that? And how five of these virgins had enough oil in their lamps to find their way in the night in order to wait for the bridegroom, but five didn't. Five were prepared for the delay and the eventual eventual arrival of the bridegroom. They had enough oil stored up in their lamps to keep it lit in the darkness of night, but five weren't prepared and they didn't have enough oil. Jesus' point being to you and me, be prepared. Have enough knowledge by not shying away from this prophecy stuff, as well as enough faith and love and righteousness stored up in your soul, your lamp, so that in the darkness of night... You might find your way, and you might be ready for his return at any time. In other words, the whole point of this prophecy stuff is to bolster our faith and make us ready for whatever comes down the pike in the future. You know, at parties sometimes people ask a, 
a question, something like this, they'll say something like, you know, if you knew that your life was going to end tomorrow or next week, what would you do different? All of us have been asked that question. You know, that if, if you knew, Dave, that next week, God showed you next week it was going to end, what would you do different between now and then? And, and you look at people's answers, they're all over the map. I mean, like if you're a fun junkie, you say, well, I'd go to Acapulco or something like that, you know, and then I'd take a vacation. If you're, you know, like if you're messing up in your life, you'd say, well, I guess I'd take my marriage more seriously and I'd start to form my kids and I'd call them, I'd tell them I'd love them and, you know, whatever, whatever it might be for you. Somebody shared with me years ago, and I thought this was really cool, he said, you know, for the Christian... The answer is easy. If somebody said to you as a Christian who's following Jesus that if you knew your life was going to end next week, what would you do different? The answer would be nothing. Nothing at all. Because if you're a Christian following Jesus now, we're commanded, we're called to be ready at any given moment for His return to be prepared to have the oil in our lamps. And so arguably, we wouldn't have to do anything different if we knew our life was going to end next week. That's what a reading of Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 shows us. That God has a good track record of when He says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. So you and I need to respond by being prepared. Now, we're just getting started here. There's more that Daniel teaches us here, much more. And it doesn't have just to do with God's past track record of predicting what is to come and what has come but it has to do with his future predictability that we need to also bank on. And so here's the second thing that a cogent reading of Daniel 7 teaches us, and that is that we're not done yet. God still has a set plan for our future. I know I said the future there, but personalize it, our future. One of the things Daniel 7 is going to teach us right now here is that God's not done yet. He still has other things planned for our future in our lives. Now, now, folks, it's this point in our journey through Daniel 7 that I need to be really clear on something. And that is that when it comes to the prophecies that we're going to look at here in just a second, laid out in verses 8 through 14, and then verses 18 through 27, there's been a lot of disagreement and debate as to what these things are precisely referring to when they talk about things that will arise out of this fourth beast, Rome, and all that is to follow. In other words, this is what I was talking about earlier when I said that there's a lot of debate when it comes to prophecy. And and you look at all the various interpretations of what we're going to look at right now in the latter half of Daniel 7, and I'm telling you, it's all over the map. The the preterist view, which is, again, R.C. Sproul and his buddies argue that most of this stuff happened at the end end of the New Testament church, about 70 A.D. with the fall of Jerusalem. So everything in Daniel 7 is basically past history. It already came to pass. Then you got the amillennial view of Calvin and and guys like that that basically argue that much of this stuff came to fruition in Christ and and that now it's happening in the spiritual realm, in the church and through his people, but but not necessarily in the physical realm. And then you got the whole dispensational school. Forget what that word, the $10 word, but basically means those who, who have such a high view of the Old Testament that if it didn't happen literally and obviously in the time of Christ, then it's going to happen in the future. In other words, all this stuff is still going to happen. I mean, people are all over the map when it comes to their view of the latter half of Daniel chapter 7. Good Bible-believing Christians. This is where a lot of the disagreement comes in. And the key for you and I is that somehow we need to look at this land on some things, and make some discernments for our own lives. And that's precisely what I want to help you do right now. 
Now, the key to making sense of this part of Daniel's prophecy is to focus on, wrestle with, and eventually come down on five key aspects of Daniel's vision here in the latter half of this chapter. And here are the five aspects you and I need to wrestle with very quickly right now. And that is the vision of the ten horns, the vision of the little horn arising out of the ten horns, the vision of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, the vision of the ancient days sitting on the judgment throne, and then whatever it means in verse 18 when it says that the saints are going to receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. Listen closely, folks. How you interpret and make sense of these five aspects of Daniel's vision here will absolutely determine what you will eventually see this passage as saying about the future of this world and of God's people as well. And so what I want to do rather quickly here is you walk you through each of these five aspects, share with you some of the main options, and then share with you what I have concluded and why. And I'll just warn you right now, I'm going to lose some of you right now. You're saying, well, you lost me 10 minutes ago. That's another story. But I'm going to lose some of you right now as we walk through this because this is definitely future 401. This is definitely not for the faint-hearted. I'll bait some of you. This is only for men. And so um, I'd like you to try to stay with me. But if you get lost in all of this, don't panic. We're going to cover some of this in weeks ahead. And I'm also going to pull it all together in just a few minutes here. Okay? So here we go. First, the ten horns. It says in verse 8, when describing the fourth beast, Rome, that it had ten horns. And then in verse 24, it gives us a little bit more information. It says that these ten horns are ten kingdoms that will arise from this fourth beast, Rome. Now, some scholars see these ten horns as simply referring to the ten leaders of Rome ruling around the time of Christ. The ten kings or Caesars from Julius Caesar up through Domitian. And so for them, these ten horns have already come and gone. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you got the dispensationalist school of John Walvoord and his contemporaries that see these ten horns as future secular kingdoms that are going to arise in the last days. In other words, these are going to be ten future kingdoms that are eventually going to come in our future, signaling the end. And then a third view is that these ten horns symbolically represent all the cumulative power in the secular realm that will exist from the time of Rome until Jesus' return. They're symbolic for all of secular power, ten being a cumulative type of number. And i got to tell you, I tend to favor interpretation number two or three. Though all of these have biblical merits, I tend to lean to the second or third option that the ten horns represent either the cumulative power since the time of Rome, even up through the present day, or ten actual kingdoms that will come with power in the last days. And the main reason I believe this is because the book of Revelation, which is another book obviously on prophecy, mentions ten horns, it mentions them as ten kingdoms, and it mentions them coming in the future from where we are now. And so it's hard for me to believe that this stuff has already been fulfilled. And so the ten horns are ten future kingdoms, secular kingdoms, that will arise or cumulative power of all the secular kingdoms from the reign of Rome up until present day and even till the end. That's where I come down on this. Now, hang on to that. Let's focus on the little horn. It says in Daniel 7, 8, that another horn, a little horn, will arise from these ten horns. And then in verses 24 and 25, it says, and another shall arise after them, the ten kingdoms, and shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. 
He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to even change the times and the law. John Calvin, the great reformer, interpreted this little horn to mean all the Caesars that would exist before and during the time of Christ. You know, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, men like that. So for him, this little horn represented all the power-hungry, evil rulers who arose before and during the time of Jesus. So for him, they've come and they've gone, prophecy fulfilled. And yet others, however, see this little horn as referring to what the New Testament would expound upon. Now, don't miss this. The Antichrist, you've heard of that, or the man of lawlessness that will be a single ruler in the last days who will be seemingly wonderful and garner a very positive reputation among many, but is eventually going to prove himself to be so power-hungry, anti-God, and even against God's people. The New Testament in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and Revelation 13 predicts this man of lawlessness, this antichrist that is going to arise someday toward the end and even, if possible, lead God's people astray, though many will recognize him for who he is. And I got to tell you, I tend to agree with this latter view here, though I hate to disagree with Calvin. I tend to agree that this little horn here seems awfully synonymous with the New Testament Antichrist to come. That when you read the description here of the little horn and then read the description that John and Paul and John again gives, or John again gives us of the Antichrist, it seems like that's exactly what Daniel, who Daniel, is describing here. And so the little horn for me is the Antichrist here, an eventual ruler like none before that will seem wonderful but lead God's people astray and even persecute God's people. Now, now pause for a second. I'm going to put all this together in just a minute, I promise. But let me make one comment real quick on this interpretation of the Antichrist. There have been brilliant scholars for 2,000 years now that have read Daniel 7 and seen it as synonymous with the Antichrist. One of the dangers with that interpretation, however, is that then every generation is tempted to point to somebody and say, there's the Antichrist, right? And sure enough, during the time of Hitler, there's the Antichrist. Uh, back in the 70s, I heard Christians say, Henry Kissinger, the Antichrist. During the 80s, it's true, I got an entire book written in the 1980s arguing that Prince Charles is the Antichrist. And we can go on and on and on. Every generation seems bent on identifying the Antichrist, so you point to somebody, call him the Antichrist, and I'm not sure that's very helpful to God's kingdom or to this world. Here's the deal, folks. When the Antichrist comes, for those of us who are walking with God, it'll be obvious. You won't have to write a book defending it. It's going to be obvious. Yeah, the weaker ones might be led astray, but the Bible makes it pretty clear that this man of lawlessness is going to be pretty clear to those of us who are walking with God. And so if you have any doubt, then there probably is significant doubt. That's just what I want to say on that. So you got the ten horns, ten future secular kingdoms or cumulative secular power. You got the little horn, the Antichrist, and then the third aspect of Daniel's vision, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Verses 13 and 14 of Daniel's vision. He says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right, 
Bible 101 quiz here. Who is this talking about here? Say it with me together. Jesus. Yeah. There are some liberal scholars who like barely believe the Bible that think this isn't talking about Jesus. But almost every Bible-believing conservative scholar says this is Jesus. And the main reason being is because in Mark chapter 14, Jesus described himself as the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So like that's a tough one not to put together, right? Jesus says I'm that. Daniel says that like one and one equals two. However, the debate comes in, and this is where you and I need to wrestle with here, is that when Daniel uses this phrase, is this referring to Jesus' first coming 2,000 years ago or his second coming referenced in 2 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 or Acts chapter 1? Again, Calvin sees this prophecy in Daniel as referring to Jesus' first coming. Again, so that this prophecy and many others in Daniel have already taken place. And yet others see this as referring to Jesus' second coming, a future happening still to take place. So which is it? And though it's certainly debatable, we've got to grant that, I tend to favor the second coming interpretation here, and I'll tell you why. Because of three words. With the clouds. If it wasn't for those three words, I wouldn't have any idea. But when it says that Jesus will come here in Daniel with the clouds, let me ask you, did he come the first time with the clouds? No. Does it say he's going to come the second time with the clouds? Yes. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was ascended into heaven, it says he ascended into the clouds, and an angel there said to those watching, he is going to come again just like you see him go. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says he's going to come in the clouds. So it seems pretty clear to me that Daniel here must mean his second coming. And just let that sink in, folks. 2,500 years ago, before even his first coming, God predicted his second coming. That's pretty incredible. Now, moving right along, we have a fourth key aspect to making sense of Daniel 7, and that's the description of the Ancient of Days. It says in verses 9 and 10, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Whoa. Now again, conservative, orthodox, Bible-believing Christians see this as obviously referring to God, and even to God's judgment. But where the debate comes in is this. Is this God's judgment during Jesus' first coming when God placed a judgment on sin through Jesus and forgave us of our sin. Is that what this is referring to? Or is this Revelation chapter 20 where we read about the great white throne and God's ultimate and final judgment of all people based on what they did on this earth and what they did with Jesus, whether they believed or trusted in him or not? Which judgment is it referring to? And though, again, it's debatable and there's arguments on both sides, I just got to tell you, this description of God's judgment here in Daniel 7 is way too eerily like Revelation 20, the final judgment, for me to not see it as synonymous with this. So I prefer to see this as talking about the future judgment of all people. Now hang on to all this. We're almost ready to put it together. And notice one final key to understanding Daniel's prophecy here, and that is the phrase found in verse 18 when it says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And then verse 27 uses almost identical language to say the same thing. 
And again, once again, scholars debate this. Like, does this mean receive the kingdom like when we received the kingdom when we came to Christ and now we rule with Christ in the spiritual realm as we see prayers answered and things like that, which the New Testament talks about? Or is this where you talk about receiving the kingdom of Revelation 22 when it says that saints will rule forever and ever in the heavenly realms for all of eternity? Or could this be referring to Revelation chapter 20 where it talks about a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth known as the millennial kingdom that when he returns, he's going to rule on this earth for a 1,000 years and us with him? Which is it? And once again, though worthy of robust debate and discussion, I tend to see this prophecy here in Daniel 7 as referring to both the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, then leading into the eternal state where we will reign with Him. You can read it later if you want to. We're going to discuss it in a few weeks here when we get to Daniel 9. But no less than six times in Revelation 20, it mentions a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth And I have to believe that this ties directly to what Daniel is talking about here as well. It just fits too neatly for me not to see it this way. So look up here on the screen, folks. Put all this together. You got the ten horns being the cumulative power of secular power uh, up until Rome, up until the time when Christ returns, or ten future kingdoms. You got the little horn, which is the Antichrist to come. You got the Son of Man coming in the clouds, Jesus' second coming. You got the Ancient of Days, God's final judgment on humanity. And then you got saints receiving the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, leading into the eternal state. And when you add all of this up together like this, you begin to get a pretty clear picture (laughs) of God's future and predictable movement and plan for this world and His people. Look up here on the screen. This is how it all fits together. Uh, Three things that it's saying here. First is that we can expect a continual rule of secular power up until the end. Man, for some of you this morning, if you don't hear anything, hear that. That one of the things the Bible makes clear is that there will be a continual rule of secular power up until Christ comes to set things straight. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says that in the latter days, men will go from bad to worse. In other words, the Bible does not paint a picture of things getting better, but a picture of things getting worse as time goes along. I know it's not good news, but it's reality. It's what the Bible says is going to happen. And sure enough, in our culture, we've been seeing even more and more of that, right? The Bible says this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're strangers and aliens here. Don't get too comfortable. Why? Because this world is turned over to one that is not of God, the evil one, and secular power is going to reign. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for morals. We shouldn't fight for values. Of course we should, because we can see seasons where we make a dent. But at the end of the day, recognize what the Scriptures are saying, and that's that those ten horns and that single horn, things are going to get worse. And that leads then to the view of the Antichrist. That 2 Thessalonians 1 John, Revelation 13, make it clear that at some point, some point, there's going to be a ruler who leads lots and lots of people astray. A whole world ruler that would lead people astray. But those two things are just the beginning of the end where things get tremendously better. That Christ is going to return that when he returns, he's going to set up a kingdom on this earth in which he rules in, Revelation 20. Then after that, there will be a judgment of all people and then an eternal state where those that know him will spend eternity with him without temptation, without pain, without trouble, without trial 
in the blissful presence of God. This is what I believe, folks, Daniel's laying out for you and me, confirmed by many other passages, that it's going to get worse, but it's going to end glorious. That's why the prophet Joel called it the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's great in one sense. It's also terrible in one sense. It's what the scriptures are predicting for the future of this world. Now, let's bring this to a very practical level, however, before we go. And so here's the point of all of this, and I don't want you to miss this. This is what we walk away from Daniel 7 realizing, and that is that there is lots more to come. And so you and I have one response, and that is to trust God for the future. There's lots more to come, and so we trust Him for the future. As many of you know, I've been studying this uh, stuff, boning up since my seminary days for about a year now. Some of you really wanted me to preach this series last spring, right after we did Daniel 1 through 6, but I wasn't ready. And so I uh, spent a lot of time in prep and meditation on this. And it hit me this week that there's really two reasons why all of this should matter to all of us. The first we've already talked about, and that's that this prepares us for what lies ahead and causes us to worship God in a deeper way. That's obvious. And yet, another thing also hit me this week, and it's the second reason that you and I need to study and digest the future happenings of Daniel 7 and all other prophecy, and it's simply this, that one of the things we realize when we realize what is to come is that if God can be in such control of all the big events, I mean, think about it, if God can be in so much control of this world that he knows about reigning secular power, he knows about an antichrist to come, he knows about his millennial kingdom, he knows about a judgment, he knows about the return of Christ, he knows about an eternal state. If God can be in such huge control of all of that, then what me this week is that certainly he can be in full control of your life now, and certainly you can trust him now with all of your problems and concerns. Each week I hear people's concerns in their lives. I hear things like the economic downturn, cultural instability in our world today, more personal things like kids that don't turn out like we thought they would, marriages that have gone south, jobs that are dead end and frustrating, relationships that struggle, emotions that don't work. These are things that you and I deal with Monday through Saturday. And you know one of the things I hope you walk away with today from, I hope you walk away thinking something like this, that if God can handle the Antichrist, if God can handle the millennium, if God is planning on coming again to set everything right, then guess what? He can handle your problems this week. Amen? I mean, it just makes sense that way. I'm thinking about my own life. I mean, I'm just like you guys. I get so consumed with this stuff going on here. I'm consumed with my kids. I'm consumed with my marriage. I'm consumed with my job and some of the petty problems we have here. I'm consumed that some of you don't like the music. I'm consumed by lots of things that go on here. They vie for my attention and I worry way too much about that. Then I read this stuff and I go, what am I worried about? God in heaven is not up there wringing his hands about the music of our church. He's not. Hey. Yeah, first service didn't do that. That's sweet. All right. But God is not up there wringing his hands worried about the music of our church, is he, Bill? I mean, he's not. I mean, he's like going, you guys are really arguing about that? Really? I mean, he's just not worried about that stuff. And think about the other things you're like. He's not worried about that stuff either. He cares. He's concerned. Thank you. He cares. You guys are treating me like Brian Loritz. Anyways, he cares. He's concerned about that stuff, but he's not worried about it. 
And again, I personalized it for me this week. I got lots of stuff going on, stuff I wouldn't even dare share with you. I got my own dragons, nothing that disqualifies me from ministry or anything like that. Because I know how some of you think, what is it? No. But, but I got things that I'm struggling with. And when I put them in light of the stuff written about in Daniel 7, and then I realize God's in control of all of that, I just go, whoa. He's in control of me too then. And he's in control of my life. And he's worthy to be trusted. And that's how I walk away from Daniel 7. We've got a lot of stuff we're going to talk about in this series. And all of it's going to be very practical. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on. You're going to have to bear with me as we plow through this stuff. But as you do that, you're going to get to the end with some really practical stuff that will do nothing but bolster your faith. Now, we're not even going to get to point three today. We're going to do that in three weeks. But because some of you are super high control people and you've got to fill in the blanks, here it is. <laughs> Give me a click here. And that is that history will culminate with the return of Jesus Christ. You guys are laughing. Some of you are going, history will culminate with the return of Jesus So anyways, that, that's the fourth po- or third point here. And, and again, it's something that Daniel makes really clear. But we're going to get to that in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, when we talk about the return of Christ as well. But it's just suffice it to say that when he returns, it'll be a glorious day for those of us who know him. A homecoming like none other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thanks for your word. Lord, you know that uh, almost every time I read your word, something jumps up at me that I hadn't seen before, and I think that's your Holy Spirit um, helping me realize how good and great and awesome you are and how powerful you are in our lives. And Lord, our, our response is to do nothing but trust, to trust and lay our lives down as we talked with the men last week to abandon our lives to you is the response you would have. And so as we go to the communion table now, as we go to celebrate this first coming of Jesus, I pray, God, that you would do nothing but continue to strengthen our faith and our trust in you through this act of worship. God, continue to surprise us with joy through the latter half of Daniel. May uh, we learn things we didn't know before. May we trust you in ways that we haven't before. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Servers are going to come forward right now and serve you the communion elements. As many of you know, we're celebrating now the first coming of Jesus Christ where he brought us, he bought us forgiveness of our sin. He's allowed us to come to God now in full confidence of faith and our prayers are heard and his presence is real. So I would ask you to take these elements, go ahead and pass them out, guys, and and, and hold them and uh, I will lead us all in partaking together. Jennifer is going to sing a song for us during this time to help your heart worship and focus on him. Your face is beautiful And your eyes are like the stars Your gentle hands have healing There inside the skies Your loving arms, they draw me near And your smile, it brings me peace Draw me closer, oh my Lord Draw me closer, Lord, to Thee And captivate us, Lord Jesus Set our eyes on You Devastate us with your presence falling down and rushing rivers. 
river draws nearer. Holy fountain, consume us with you. Captivate us, Lord Jesus, with you. And let everything be lost in the shadow, in the light of your face. Let every chain be broken from me as I'm bound in your grace. For your yoke is easy, your burden is light, you're full of wisdom, power, and might, and every eye, oh, they will see you. Captivate us, Lord Jesus, set our eyes on you, devastate us. With your presence falling down, and rushing river draws nearer. Holy fountain, consume us with you. Captivate us, Lord Jesus, with you. Oh, well, captivate us. Lord Jesus, with you, oh, captivate us. Can you imagine living in Old Testament times? Can you imagine living under the law of Moses? Some of you have read it. New Testament says that the law was a taskmaster given to point us to Christ. So everybody lived in the Old Testament longed for something you and I now have. Everyone that lived in the Old Testament longed for the day that they wouldn't have to go through some sort of sacrificial ritual on a yearly basis, if not more often, in order to atone for their sin to somehow be right with God. They long for the day that God would show up and draw them to himself in personal intimacy through an eternal forgiveness of sin. It's exactly what happened when Jesus came the first time. There's no doubt. He, he abolished sin and death so that we might be forgiven, so that we might know God. And that's what we celebrate with these elements. So check this out, though. Many of us long for more. That's a good thing. We long for heaven. We long for, for even more of God. Um, we have enough of God now. Do you understand that? Scriptures use the word sufficiency. We have, we, we have the sufficiency now in the word and in the living word, Jesus, for all we need to live life now on his terms. I hope you can get in touch with that today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It's going to be given for you, and I want you to eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood, shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. God, our Father, as we go now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, my prayer is that we go remembering, remembering his first coming, longing for his second. God, may the truths that we understand in your word do nothing but bolster and deepen our faith, our resolve, our trust, and our following of you. And so, Lord, until we meet again, would you give us a deep sense of your presence and power from your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people said together, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.